So please open your Bibles to Colossians 3, verses 5 through 7, as Josh read for us. And over the past 10 to 15 years, uh, some of the, the sins and destructive dynamics of sexual immorality and, and greed, which is also covetousness, uh, have been exposed and confronted with great intensity. You think of things like the Me Too movement and the arrests of Harvey Weinstein and Jeffrey Epstein, and how these things brought attention to the fact that there are men who will use women for their own sexual gratification. And then we see how the economic crash of 2008 and sort of the rise of the Occupy movement and sort of the criticism of the 1%, and even in the ways that that was kind of misguided and broken, there was still this this aspect of our culture that was being exposed, that there are those who are greedy and they will exploit large portions of the United States, of Americans in order to have financial gain. And so what these movements show is that there is great destruction and great harm in our culture, in our society. But the devastating effects of sexual immorality and covetousness can be seen in other ways. So, so for instance, according to the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy, between 35 and 45% of marriages face marital infidelity and the pain and the damage that that brings. And then if you consider the pornography industry, it's estimated that it is between a six and $15 billion a year industry. And, And how our society and culture, not just Christians and those with conservative sexual ethics, but the world largely is starting to see the damaging effects of pornography, how it damages healthy sexuality and damages our ability to attach and inform healthy human relationships and how it damages marriages. And so our world is seeing over and over again the damaging effects of sexual immorality. And then when it comes to covetousness, the desire for more and more, the effects are devastating here as well. When you consider that the average American family is in $145,000 of debt and the average amount of revolving credit card debt is $6,200, and then you see that the number one marital fight that people report on is, is finances, and you see the number two cause of divorce is financial conflict, you begin to see how covetousness can do damage to our relationships. Now look, I'm not saying that all debt is because you're greedy Americans. I'm not saying just because you fight about money, that means you and your spouse are greedy. But far too often, that is the case. And maybe far more often than we want to admit that there's conflict in our relationship because of the covetousness that we have in our hearts. And we also need to consider this. Look, these numbers, they tell just part of the story. This is just a small portion. The the way that sexual immorality and the way that covetousness does damage to our relationships, the shame and the pain and the guilt, they take many different forms. And and that pain and that destruction goes deep and it affects us wide and broad. And and while there is sensitivity and awareness in our society to some of these sins, while, while there is awareness to some of these sins, the problem isn't slowing down. The problem of sexual immorality and covetousness and greed and the damage it does in our relationships, it's not slowing down in our country in any way, shape, or form. And the reason is, is because the problem isn't dealt with at the root. 
And so, yeah, it's good that we have laws and policies that protect people from those who would prey on them, whether sexually or financially. It's good that we put boundaries into our lives to, to keep us from sexual immorality. It's good that we have a, have a budget and rein in our spending and work on communication. Hey, all of those things are good. But if we're not addressing it at the heart level, we're not really addressing the problem. We're not going to see gospel reformation take place. We're not going to see our community transformed by the gospels and relationships reformed. In Colossians 3.6, the Apostle Paul, he strings together the sins of sexual immorality and impurity and, and lust, or sometimes translated passion, evil desire, and the CSB translate the word greed, but I'm going to use the word covetousness, um, and, and some other translations use that term. He strings these sins together, and then at the end, he says that covetousness is idolatry. And so he's directly equating covetousness and idolatry. However, enlisting covetousness with sexual immorality and impurity and lust and passion and evil desires, he's also making a correlation. He's making a correlation between those sins and idolatry as well. And so what this means is this. If we're going to address the problems of sexual immorality, if we're going to address the problems of covetousness and how they wreck our relationships, we need to address idolatry. We need to get to the heart of the problem, the heart of the issue. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. And so two main points for us. The first is we're going to look at how we've been formed by idolatry. And the second is how we experience reformation and how we're reformed by Christ. And so when we talk about being formed by idolatry, it's probably a good place to start by asking the question, what is idolatry? What, what, what does that even mean? Because it can be fairly easy to think that idolatry is just sort of limited to those religious practices that involve kind of bowing down to statues or, or some sort of other object that we believe either represents a god or kind of has the, the, the power of the god sort of in it. And, and look, that's part of it. That, that's certainly a definition of idolatry. We see in the second commandment, the second commandment prohibits idolatry, the use of idols, the use of statues, the use of carved images in the worship of the one true God. However, Scripture's definition of idolatry is far bigger than just that practice. And if we see, the first commandment starts with, you shall have no other gods before me. And so the second commandment, the prohibition against idolatry, flows from the first. And so idolatry is a worship problem. Idolatry flows from false worship, and it's not just the false worship of statues and trinkets. Idolatry is far broader, far bigger. Tim Keller, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, gives us a really helpful explanation of the larger meaning of idolatry. This is what he writes. What is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. If anything becomes more fundamental than God to your happiness, meaning in life, and identity, then it is an idol. And so idolatry is far bigger than worshiping statues and trinkets. It's giving your heart, your devotion, your identity, your worship to something or someone else. 
It's saying this, God, you're not big enough. God, you're not good enough. You're not great enough. You're not glorious enough. You're not satisfying enough. And so I need to find my identity, my meaning, my purpose, my satisfaction, my joy, my security in something else. That's idolatry. And friends, here's the thing too. Often, probably most often, the idols that we have, they're not in and of themselves bad things. They're often good things, but that we make ultimate things. And so if we have this understanding of idolatry, it's actually fairly easy for us to see how Scripture can call covetousness idolatry. Because here's what it means to covet. To covet is to desire something so strongly you're willing to sin to get it. It's saying, I need, fill in the blank, no matter the cost to myself, no matter the cost to my relationships, no matter the cost to my soul. And and it's to say, look, my highest allegiance, like my, my allegiance is to this thing, and I will forsake all other allegiances. I will wreck all other relationships to get this. This is my heart's desire. Friends, whatever has your highest allegiance is your God. Whatever you most desire, whatever you most love is your God. Whatever you will forsake all other relationships and all other allegiances to give your allegiance to, that's your God. And so covetousness reveals our idols. And the connection between covetousness and idolatry becomes even clearer when we consider this. The word in the Hebrew to covet, which most prominently shows up in the 10th commandment, you shall not covet, That word is the exact same word used to describe Eve's desire for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Like she coveted after the knowledge that that tree provided. And in her coveting, she broke relationship with God. She sinned against God. She was willing to destroy her relationship with her husband. She so desired that knowledge. She so wanted what that knowledge offered that she was willing to sin to get it. In pursuing that knowledge, she thought, this was going to give me identity. This was going to give me purpose. And so her highest allegiance went in the pursuits of that knowledge. And if you're familiar with the story, don't miss what got her there. If you read in Genesis 3, what happens? Satan tempts her by saying, hey, God isn't good. God can't be trusted. God isn't faithful. God's withholding from you. And so you should go after and get that knowledge. You see, in our idolatry, here's what we're saying. We're saying, God, you aren't good, and so I need something else. God, I can't find an identity in you. I can't find satisfaction and joy and life in you. I can't find security in you, and so I'm chasing after something else. And so our idolatrous hearts will believe the lie that God isn't good. And so what we see in the sin of Eve and Adam with her, that the fundamental, primary sin of humanity is idolatry. This is the sin that in many ways is underneath all other sins. And friends, we may not bow down to idols, to statues and trinkets, but believe me, we bow down. We might bow down to inanimate objects, but we bow down to false gods all the time. We will bow down to people and relationships. We will bow down to control and power. We'll bow down to Sex and pleasure and comfort. 
We'll bow down to status and affirmation. We'll bow down to money and wealth and beauty and health and knowledge and information and comfort and ease and security. We will bow down to those things, give those things our allegiance. They will be our heart's most desire. And what this idolatry does is it forms us, it forms our habits, it forms our thoughts, it forms our actions, routines, what we give our life to, what we give our mind to, what we give our emotional energy to, it forms us. And so it makes absolute sense then why the Ten Commandments not only start with a prohibition against idolatry in the worship of God, but actually end with a prohibition against idolatry. Because here's what God's word shows us. Idolatry wrecks relationships. Idolatry destroys relationships. In your idolatry, you will wreck and you will ruin the relationships in your life because you will be chasing after false gods. Friends, we see this all throughout our society and our culture, idolatry running rampant and idolatry wrecking. Because here's what we do in our idolatry. We use people. We use people. People either become a means to fulfilling our desire and satisfying our idols, or people become idols in and of themselves. Look, either way, we use people for our own selfish ends. And so let's consider how this plays out in sexual immorality, the first sin Paul lists here. And before we get there, hey, let me just say this first. Like, sex is good. Sex is a gift of God. Sex is not something that we should be shameful and not talk about and it just kind of be pushed in the dark. No, sex is a gift of God given to a husband and a wife. Sex is this powerful gift this beautiful gift that, that deepens physical and emotional and spiritual intimacy. Sex is how we bring forth children, which is meant to expand the love of self-giving bonds. See, sex is fundamentally a self-giving act. Intimacy, vulnerability. Like, yeah, we receive pleasure, but we also, more importantly, give Give of ourselves and connect with another person. And so as we think about the nature of sex, sex's power is strong, it's potent, and this is why God put it in the safety of marriage. Not because scripture minimizes it or downplays it or sees it as something as dirty. No, it's beautiful, it's sacred, and so it should be put in the bounds of something that is um, covenantal and something that, that actually has commitment to it. But when sex is no longer about self-giving, when sex is no longer about intimacy with my spouse, then it becomes a means for me to use people. It becomes a means for, for my idolatrous heart to use people for my own ends. And so look, if I worship pleasure, if getting more and more pleasure is, is the idol of my heart, if that's what I am after, then I will use people for my pleasure and I will take and I will take and I will take. If I worship power and control, if power and control are the idol of my heart, if I need power and control in order to feel like I have a meaning and purpose and status in life, then look, I will use people, I will use sex as a main a way to gain power and control over people. If I worship affirmation, if I have to have affirmation in order to feel value and meaning, if I have to have affirmation to feel like I actually have hope, 
then sex will be a means for me to grab affirmation and suck affirmation from people. I will take and I will take and I will take. Or conversely, if affirmation is an idol of my heart, I will let other people use me. I will let others use me so that I feel like I have worth. So do you see, friends, the damage that idolatry does to our relationships? Do you see the damage that it does to our souls? And as I said earlier, like our, our world recognizes this in part, but here's what they, they think. It's an issue of power dynamics. It's an issue of legality. It's an issue of economics. They don't see that it's an idolatry problem, that it's a worship problem. And also I can say this, and, and, and this is important to get, especially for those of you who are married. Look, just because you're married doesn't mean you've been set free from idolatry. And, and, and husbands and wives, you can use your spouse. You, you can commit sexual immorality within your marriage because you're using your spouse to feed your idol. You're using them through sex. Idolatry does great damage because in idolatry, we use people. And look, the same is true with covetousness or other unchecked desires. Look, I might not use people sexually, but I use people. And so if I covet success and wealth, if I, if I need more success in life, then I will use people to accomplish my goals, to gain more and more. They, they better not fail me. They better not mess up my plans. Otherwise, there will be problems. And look, in that, I don't care about the success of others if this is your idol, if you are coveting success, you won't care about building other people up. Rather, it will be about using them for your own gain. And how often do we do this in our work? We can do this in our marriages. We can do this in our parenting. If we covet, covet affirmation and status, if we need more and more affirmation from people and validation from others, then you're going to use people to feel better about yourself. You'll do what you have to do. You'll say what you have to say to get people to like you. And here's what ends up happening. Relationship isn't about relationship and the other person. It's about using them to get validation. You begin to seek emotional connection, whether positive or negative. You begin to manipulate and control. Friends, what our world calls codependency, that's idolatry. And so in our idolatry, we use people. And maybe... Not only do you use people, but here's another dynamic. We can also neglect people. Like in our covetousness and coveting success and wealth and coveting affirmation, we can begin to neglect people that God has called us to love and to serve. Or here's another way that covetousness works out. We become jealous and competitive. Like we see people as a threat to either the thing we want or the thing that we have and we're trying to protect. And if that happens, what we start to put a wall up. We get angry and we get competitive. And maybe if it's not even outwardly competitive in our hearts, there's bitterness and jealousy, and maybe even we subtly seek to undermine people. But when we covet, when, when we give over to idolatry, it does damage to our relationships. And so friends, here's what we need to first recognize. Does not the Bible read our mail? Does not the Bible give us a far more penetrating psychological and emotional and spiritual insight into ourselves and the dynamics of ourselves and our sin than we're going to find anywhere else? Is it not true in that it says our fundamental problem is idolatry? And as those formed in idolatry, if we can be honest about that, 
if we recognize we've been formed in idolatry, is it no wonder that it's so often our relationships are shot through with damage and conflict? Is it no wonder that we see the destruction in our society and too often, sadly, in the church? And so we need to be honest here. Friends, can we be honest before the God who sees all and knows all? Honest before the God who all things are laid bare and before him. Can we be honest and recognize that we have been idolaters? Can we recognize that idolatry is in our hearts and it has done damage? And so let me ask, do you recognize any of this in yourself? Do you recognize the ways you've been using people? Do you recognize the way that you have used people sexually? Do you recognize the ways that you've chased sexual immorality? Do you recognize the ways that you coveting after things like success and affirmation and status and wealth and whatever it may be has caused damage in your relationships? Can you be honest about the using of people or neglecting or the jealousy and competitiveness that lives in your heart? Can you be honest? Also, I wonder, for some of you in here, whether in the room or on live stream, maybe you hear just talk about sexual morality and covetousness and the way people use others and neglect others. And what you're, what's happening with you is you're just reeling because you recognize you've been used. You've been the one who's been a victim of being used. Others have used you sexually or in other ways. And so that pain is very evident and very, very real in your heart right now. Can, can, I, can I just speak to you for a moment and say, one, I'm so sorry that happened to you. And I don't pretend to know what you're going through. I don't. But I can tell you this. I can relate because I carry those same wounds and scars. And so I know it hurts. And I know it's hard. And in a way, the way that gets deep down into your soul and it affects your ability to trust and affects your ability to have relationships, sometimes it feels like it's going to swallow you whole. And so I want to acknowledge your pain and recognize it and be honest about it. But can, can I also say this, and I say this with all love, we need to be careful that our wounds and our hurts don't latch on to our idolatry and cause us to seek healing and comfort and identity in false gods. Let us not be like Israel in the wilderness, who though they were hurt and though they had been damaged by Egypt and had been brought out of that, chased after false gods and false comfort and false hope. But let's not respond to the sin against us by sinning and letting idolatry run rampant in our hearts. So friends, no matter where we are this morning, we need to be honest about the ways idolatry has wrecked us and has formed us. And not only do we need to be honest about our sin and the way we've been formed, we also need to be honest and acknowledge what Colossians 3, 6, and 7 say, that because of idolatry, because of sexual immorality and evil desire and covetousness, God's wrath is coming. God is bringing wrath and judgment upon our sin. God is bringing wrath and judgment because he is just and he is good and he will judge the way that we have done damage to one another and done damage in our world. He's not indifferent to the evil. He's not indifferent to the evil of the world and the evil you and I inflict on each other. He will judge it because he is righteous and just. And so friends, look, we need rescue. We need rescue both from the hell that we have created with our idolatry and the damage in our relationships. And we also need rescue from judgments. 
the judgment that you and I deserve. But here's the good news of the gospel. Friends, here's our hope this morning. Through Jesus Christ, there is rescue. There is rescue. There is rescue from judgment, and there is rescue from the hell of idolatry. Though we have been formed in idolatry, we can be reformed in Christ. Look, God is just, and he is holy, and he is righteous, yes, but he is loving and gracious. And in his love and his grace, he sends Jesus Christ into our world. And Jesus lives that life you and I couldn't live. A perfect life, a life free of idolatry, a life full and complete obedience and love to his Father, and he does that for you. And not only that, he dies for our sin, dies in our place, the perfect and full payment for our sin. And he doesn't just die, he's resurrected, resurrected in victory over sin, over evil, and over death itself. And he has ascended into heaven and he's sitting next to God as our resurrected and reigning king and our advocates. And here's the promise of the gospel. For all who will turn from their sin, from all who will repent of their sin and turn to Jesus in faith as their savior and as their king, new life, new life in Jesus, full and complete and lasting forgiveness. You are washed clean of your sin. You are loved and you are cherished by God the Father. You are welcomed as a son, as a daughter, as an heir. The power of sin, the enslavement to sin has been broken. You have new life in Jesus. His resurrection power in you, the Holy Spirit renewing you in the image of Christ, an image that is love and righteousness and goodness and joy and peace and satisfaction. He's remaking you. And if you are in Christ, you walk in hope. We have this hope that one day Jesus is going to come back and he's going to forever put an end to evil and, and suffering and sin. And he's going to renew and reconcile all things. And friends, lest you forget, this has nothing to do with your good works. You didn't earn this. We didn't deserve it. We get this because God is gracious and loving and so if you are in Jesus, if you are in Christ, here's what's true of you. The power of idolatry, the power of sexual immorality, the power of covetousness has been broken. You no longer are a slave to those things. You no longer walk in those things. You are, what verse 7 says, one who once walked in those things. You've been set free, and so you no longer need to submit to false gods. You no longer need to submit to sinful desires and find your identity in them. And also, for those of you who've experienced being used and victimized and abused, look, that does not define you. If you are in Jesus Christ, that is not the truest thing about you. That is not what defines you. And look, I'm not denying that there is pain. I'm not denying those wounds and those scars are real. But they are not the final word over your life. They are not the thing that most defines you. And here's what this means. You have been washed clean. The Spirit has made you clean. You stand before God loved, and you stand before God accepted, righteous, and holy. And here's what this means. You don't have to chase false gods. You don't have to chase sinful desires to find healing and comfort and identity. 
Oh, if you are in Christ, the power of sin has been broken. And you no longer have to walk in idolatry. You no longer have to walk in sexual immorality. You no longer have to walk in covetousness. No, as verse 5 tells us, you can now put to death sexual immorality. You can now put to death covetousness and evil desire. You can put to death using other people. You can put to death neglecting other people. You can put to death jealousy and competition. You can put to death sin and put on Jesus. And here's how we do this. Just as we saw last week, we put off sin and we put on Christ by the Spirit. And so we put off sin and put on Christ as we feast on Jesus in his word, as we feast on Jesus together as we worship and as we pray. Because here's what happens. Through the word, through worship, through prayer, you experience more and more the love of Christ. You experience his life and his joy and his peace and the hope that is in him. You experience more and more of his glory and his goodness. And as you do that, sinful desires and the lure and the lie of false gods, they become weak, they become dull, they become less powerful. I mean, consider, what could a false god, what could a sinful desire ever offer me when I know God the Father or when I have God and his love fully satisfies me? What could a false God ever offer me? What could a sinful desire ever offer me when I have Christ, the glorious one, in whose presence is the fullness of joy? Friends, when we feast on Jesus, when we know Jesus, when we are intimate with Jesus through his word and through worship and through prayer, oh, we put off sin and we put on Christ. We put off sin and put on Christ also as we continue to walk in repentance and faith. As we continue to confess, look, God's grace meets you right in your sin right in your sin. And so we don't hide. We don't pretend. Rather, we keep confessing, we keep repenting, and day by day by day, we turn to Jesus, and day by day by day, walk more and more in the freedom that we have in Christ. And as we feast on Jesus, as we worship and we treasure him more and more, as we walk in confession and repentance, well, here's what we also do. We no longer submit our bodies to idolatry. Reformation means dying to old habits that we once gave our bodies to. Reformation means that you are going to have to no longer give your body to sexual immorality. No longer put yourself in situations and give yourself to habits and practices whereby you participate in sexual immorality. Reformation means you are going to have to stop working in covetousness, sinfully chasing success and status and wealth and affirmation. Reformation means you're going to stop using people. Stop neglecting people. Stop manipulating people. Stop letting other people use you. Reformation means that we put to death sins that we did in our bodies. And it means putting on Christ. We give ourselves to righteousness and goodness and love. And so rather than using people, we serve them. Rather than neglecting people, we sacrifice. Rather than manipulating, we walk in truth and goodness and light. Like rather than hoarding and holding back from people, we're generous with people. Or rather than finding our identity in people, no, we find our identity in Christ and have real, honest, life-giving relationships. Or rather than being jealous and competing with other people, we work to build people up. And in all of that, work that other people may know Jesus Christ and be built up in him. And here's what happens, friends. When we worship, when we confess and repent, when we put off 
old habits and we put on Christ and new habits and walk in godliness, we're going to experience just how good God is. We're going to experience his grace and his mercy and his love and, his, and the life that is in Jesus. We're going to experience hope. Well, we're going to know that, that the lie of Satan in the garden is not true. We're going to know that our God is good. Our God is just. Our God is faithful. Friends, when we put off sin and put on Christ, we experience that God and God alone satisfies. God and God alone brings joy. God and God alone is worthy of our worship. And so let me say this kind of in conclusion to this. In all of this, in all of this, we do this together. We put off sin and put on Christ together. We need each other. You need your brothers and sisters in Christ. You cannot fight idolatry alone. You cannot carry the wounds and the pain of those who have used you and hurt you alone. And so, look, if you are locked in sin this morning, and maybe you're very aware of your sexual immorality, you're very, and you feel trapped in that sin, you feel trapped in that covetousness and the ways that you've used people, you, you, just, you, you know you're sinful and you feel stuck, can I encourage you, reach out to a brother or sister. Ask them to come into this, enter into this with you, to love you and encourage you and correct you when you need to be corrected. And look, also, some of you, man, your sin goes really, 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 really deep, and you need a friend, you need a church community, but you may need also professional help. There's no shame in that. Rest in the common grace of God and his goodness to you. And especially those, again, who've been hurt by others. Friends, I recognize it's hard to trust. It so is hard to trust. But believe, God works through his people and he has good for you in community. And so seek out help, seek out community, seek out friendship, seek out professional care, but don't do this alone. Don't carry the burdens alone. Don't try to fight on your own. Look, the damage and the destruction of idolatry Sexual immorality, covetousness, they're so prevalent in our world. And in many ways, our world is crying out for change, crying out for rescue. And so First City, can we be a community that is transformed by the gospel and has our relationships reformed in the gospel? And when that happens, can we hold out hope to this world? Not hope in ourselves, not hope in our power, not hope in our wisdom, not hope in our relational health, but hope in Jesus Christ and the gospel and the power that is in the gospel? Because we have every hope, Right? Look, the world and Satan and our lying hearts will try to tell us that God isn't good and he isn't faithful, but when we look to Jesus, what do we see? God is good. When we consider the covenantal promises of God, what do we see? God is faithful. When we look at God's word, what do we see? He's true. And so let's take hold of Christ because he's taken hold of us and let's proclaim this gospel in our world. Amen? Let's pray.